Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, everybody. I am excited to welcome you back. I hope that you're really enjoying the Tudor Summit so far. I hope you're really learning a lot. The next speaker is James Bolton, and he has a podcast called the Queens of England podcast. And I first found him almost two years ago now, and he was still pretty new. And I thought, I want to do something with him. And so I wrote to him. And since that time, he's been, he did a guest episode on my show about Henry VIII's mistresses. And then we did an episode together on Catherine of Aragon. And so I'm really excited that he's taking part in this. So I have to tell you my little caveat about the videos. When I recorded this, I don't know what was going on with my internet. I live in rural Spain, right? It's like every time it rains, the internet goes out. I don't understand it, but it's how it is. Um, and so our internet like was just not working. So I actually turned off my video. And so it's just him. And so I've added the questions and you'll see. But anyway, that's my caveat on the video. Like I said before, it's a learning learning experience, right? It's a learning experience. So hope you're having fun. James is amazing. And let me introduce him you to James and the Queens of England. So too often when we think about the history of a country, we think about the kings and the lords, the castles and battles. Even when we consider rulers, we think about people like Elizabeth I and Victoria when we think of queens. But what about the queens who sat beside their husband, the queen's consort, the generations of women who held no formal power, but still wove an important strand in the tapestry of England. The Queens of England is an alternative history of England told through the lives of the women behind the throne. So I'm so excited now to bring in James Bolton and hear his story, his history, uh, his quick tour of the wives of Henry VIII. Here we go. So the first question is to walk us through the story of the six wives, but from a different perspective, because we all know the story of divorce, beheaded, died, divorce, beheaded, survived, but what's something different and unique about each wife that we might not already Obviously, know? As we all know, Henry VIII had six wives. Um, not all of them reigned equally. Uh, Catherine of Aragon uh, actually reigned for longer than all the rest of them combined. So it's kind of difficult to compare them completely. Um, and obviously I knew a lot of them, some of them, sorry, better when I started than when I finished. I've just finished covering them all. Um, 
for Catherine of Aragon, I kind of knew quite a lot about her because I've studied that period of history a lot more extensively than perhaps um, the later, sort of the later wives. Um, but often I think when you study Catherine of Aragon, you don't think about um, the bit before she became queen, the bit when she was married to Arthur. Everyone knows, of course, that she was married to Henry's older brother before he died. Um, but I loved, because I'm a tremendous nerd, finding out about sort of all the negotiations, because we had Arthur, Henry's father, Henry VII, and um, Catherine's father, Ferdinand, were tremendous negotiators, but also incredibly obstinate men um, who were incredibly tight and never wanted to spend any money. Uh, and so we have this sort of incredibly long series of negotiations trying to arrange this marriage, really leaving Catherine in a horrible state of limbo, going to England and being sort of stuck there. Uh, and I think that was a very strong formative experience for her. Uh, she still had to learn to rely on herself to not trust anyone. And I think that, I think that was very instructive for me uh, when thinking about her, particularly in her later years. Um, for Anne, Anne Boleyn, for me, it's not so much a unique thing because obviously many of Henry VIII's wives suffered a fall. But for me, what I found was really fascinating was the long, slow burn that was the way that she came to the throne. It took seven years. And from their first meeting, through the courtship, through trying to get the divorce, through eventually getting married, getting on the throne. And then she lost it in the space of just a few days um, from when Cromwell slash Henry, depending on your view and who you blame, mm -hmm. uh, first moved to when she was imprisoned. And it took less than three weeks for her to lose her head. It was, it's a truly fascinating period. Um, for Jane Seymour, uh, I discovered a new word uh, when I was studying her, something called good estate. Uh, and that's that she was the first Queen of England uh, in a while, um, or maybe not the first, but one of the very few for a very long time in English history who died in what's called good estate, which is she was in favor at the time of her death. Uh, she was, of course, died giving birth to Edward VI, the long and sought for heir to the throne. But if you look at previous Queens of England, with the exception of Elizabeth of York and perhaps Anne Neville, although obviously Henry III wasn't all that popular, loads of Queens before them had died um, with either the people, the king, or the nobility hating their guts. Uh, and so Jane is this rare person that everyone seemed to like when she died because she provided the long sought for heir that everyone knows about. Um, for Anne of Cleves, uh, everyone of course knows about the fact that she's the ugly one, even though she wasn't. Uh, and she was the one that, you know, Henry married even though he didn't really want to and then got quickly. But what I found is really quite sweet about Anne of Cleves is that when she was having this long journey sent off to England, you know, came from Germany, the Low Countries, this long journey through to Calais and then had to wait there for a long time because of storms and then coming over to England. Of what things that she asked some of the English uh, delegations there about, she wanted to find out more about Henry and more importantly, she wanted to find out what made him tick and uh, what she had to do to impress him and to try and make this work. Um, she tried to learn a bit more about 
the sorts of things that he liked his wives to do. And so you so often see these, these women in history as being very passive act actors. And yet Anne here was sort of taking it upon herself to try and really make this whole thing work. And of course, sadly, it didn't. Um, for Catherine Howard, I, I love Catherine Howard, even though she was a terrible queen, she's possible not to like. Um, I've enjoyed finding out about this weird house that she essentially grew up in. She, um, her father was a complete waste of space, her mother died young, and so she was essentially taken into the care of an elderly relative uh, who had in her care this, a load of young women. Um, and she took absolutely no interest in making sure that lots of men weren't getting in and, and enjoying and partying and all sorts of things in this, in this sort of, I think I described it in my episode, sort of boarding school comes sex den. Oh um, and it's just, just reading some of the things you, you find out that they had a secret hiding place in their, in their dormitory where they used to hide the men. And you have these sort of weird, sort of slapstick moments where someone tells the Duchess that there's men and she comes storming him, but they hide on in this, behind this thing. I think it was, a, I can't remember if it was a tapestry or a trap door. It was something weird like that. Um, and then with Catherine Parr, uh, again, a lot of people know that she was the many widowed queen. She had four husbands in all, uh, three of them predeceased her. Um, and, uh, she died um, shortly after marrying Thomas Seymour. And what I find is you don't hear a lot about the first two husbands they're seen as this sort of unimportant prologue, but they're all so very different from each other. You have the first husband is this sort of young, um, quivering wreck, um, dominant, you know, under the sort of the, uh, I can't think of the word like this, this he, had, he, had, he had this incredibly strong dominant father figure, who sounds a bit terrifying. Uh, and then you have, he's really just looking for someone to mother his children for him. And she takes on this very stepmotherly role. Um, and then you, of course you have the third husband, Henry, where she's a queen, she's, a, she's in the sort of forefront of the reform of, of the church and of, of Protestantism, all that sort of agent. She's got all this stuff going on, completely different from the quite provincial life that she had in her first two marriages. And then with the fourth husband, or you have, you know, the three other matches were all for advance, not a lot of option really. They were chosen for her or, or sent to it by circumstances. And then she chose this fourth, choice was very much for love but you know she was actually treated well by her three other husbands uh, and her fourth husband who she married for love treated her very badly uh thomas seymour is not a very nice man mm. um so yeah that's my <laughs> things i learned from studying the six wives so i've heard before catherine of aragon was described as the last medieval queen and I'm curious whether you would agree with that, and if so, how? And if not, why? So maybe talk a little bit about this idea of what medieval queenship was and how that changed, not just with Anne Boleyn, because obviously that was very different, but even with later queens like Jane Seymour. 
So I'm interested in well, that. the problem when trying to say that Catherine of Aragon is the last medieval queen is you have to then spend about five minutes describing what a medieval queen is before you can say whether she was the last of them. Um, I'll give you a boring introduction to this, which is, of course, let's remember the Middle Ages is an artificial construct created by history up. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, um, the, the medieval period in an English sense is really sort of seen as from about when the Romans left to sort of Henry VIII, Tudor-y era, sort of, you know, late sort of 5th century BCE to, sorry, uh, sorry, 5th century CE to about 1500, 16th century CE. So you can sort of see Catherine, you know, if she's right on that dividing line, then maybe she was. Mm. Um, but that's somewhat problematic because she's obviously far more similar to fellow queens, sort of to Anne Boleyn, the rest of the wives going into the Stuart queens, than she is to the wives of Alfred the Great, of even William the Conqueror. I mean, going back to the sort of Saxon kings, uh, Saxon kings and queens. But that's not really what you're looking for. So let's <laughs> let's sort of dig a little bit deeper. Um, and I guess what's a more interesting question is, is she more similar to the queens that came for her? So we're looking at people like Elizabeth Woodville, Margaret of Anjou, um, going to France, Anna Bohemia, the Wars of the Roses era, and before that, because the Wars of the Roses is a slightly tumultuous time. Um, <laughs> or is she more similar to people like Anne Boleyn, people like Jane Seymour going through to Anne of Denmark, Henrietta Maria, or the Stuarts. And I would say in that sense, yes, she probably is the last medieval queen. Um, but because she seems to in, um, imbue a lot of what I would call the classic medieval attributes, she isn't the last Catholic queen of England um, because uh, Jane Seymour was definitely a Catholic, Anne of Cleves was definitely a Catholic. Catherine Howard wasn't really religious as far as I can tell, but she was at least culturally Roman Catholic. Anne Boleyn, she wasn't Protestant. She was very much a reforming person. So whether you want to call her like a reformist Catholic or something else, say, but Catherine Aragon isn't that, but she lived in the last time when England was under the auspices, under papal authority. And so you see her doing things like giving lots of money to monasteries and that kind of infrastructure, which just didn't exist uh, after uh, the 1540s. Mm. Um, she wasn't the last arranged foreign marriage either. And that's obviously something that is often very much associated with the Middle Ages. But I mean, that carried on right through to arguably 20th century even. Um, so you can't really say that. Um, she wasn't the last regent either. Sometimes medieval queenship, you know, these women uh, who often in situations would become um, the the kingdom when the husband was away because medieval kingship was very much this sort of family kinship group ruling. Um, monarchs weren't absolute monarchs like you get in the modern period. They tended to rule by consent, by domination of, of the nobility, but always with powerful warlord rather than some uh, something higher really 
Um, and so that's why you can get queens uh, ruling more in the Middle Ages, but we do get it afterwards. Catherine Parr did it. Mm-hmm. But you don't see all of ever again. She's like this complete medieval queen. She has conventional piety. The problem I've often had when the other wives of Henry VIII is what is conventional piety in a post-break with Rome, England? What does it look like? It looks completely different to what a medieval queen being conventionally pious was. You know, you sort of think about, you know, did they give lots of money to the church? Did they patronize monastery? Did they give alms to the poor? Did they look at things like um, local centers of learning? Um, Catherine of Aragon did all of that, and yet, and that's a huge part of what queenship was. And yet you can't do that in a post-Catholic dominated country. Mm. Um, final thing is, Everyone knows Anne Anne Boleyn was executed and she was the first English queen, um, certainly since the conquest, maybe ever. The Anglo-Saxon days are kind of dark. Every queen after Anne Boleyn, particularly in the set of Henry VIII, lived under this spectre of, there is a possibility that if things go wrong, if I don't do my job, if I don't show due deaths, if I don't, stay on Henry's good books, I could lose my life. That spectre had never been there before. You know, queens had got into dread with their husbands. I mean, uh, the perennial, the perennial, um, I've forgotten the word, uh, sort of, uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine is always the outlier throughout all the medieval queens because she is, a ruler in her own right, she's incredibly powerful. She rebelled against her husband and all, and she was just imprisoned. We have um, Elizabeth Woodville, who was imprisoned after um, her, her brother-in-law took the throne. You have other queens who rebel and yet they're still kept alive because killing a queen, killing a woman, was seen as something you didn't do. It was unchivalric. It was not the done thing. Um, and yet Anne Boleyn was executed and everyone else had to live under spectre. And Catherine of Aragon didn't have that. Um, so yeah, in summary, um, it's somewhat difficult to call the last medieval queen uh, definitively because the question is, is fraught with definitional problems. But Yes, I would say she is the last medieval queen. So one of the kind of stereotypes of Catherine of Aragon is that what we know of her is just based around her fertility. Like it's her inability to have a son. There's so much more to her than that. She was such an intelligent woman. I'm curious, what else is there? What do you think of when you think of Catherine of Aragon? What else should we be thinking of when we think of her? Yeah, it's it's so frustrating when you study these queens and, and everyone loves to take their own agency away. Um, you sort of see them as these sort of people who had things done to them. And it's understandable because they didn't have a huge amount of power. A lot of the power that they did have was at the behest of the husband and a lot of things that did happen to them, they didn't have a huge amount of control over. But looking at Catherine of Aragon, she's possibly the best example of that because I describe her as pretty much the perfect queen, certainly perfect queen in a medieval sense. 
um, you know, she was, uh, she came from a good family. She gave brought a good dowry. She brought a foreign alliance. She uh, was a great moral example. She was very popular. And yet the one thing that she had to do, uh, admittedly the most important thing she had to do, she has no control over. She, it's not like, it wasn't for lack of trying. She wasn't one of those queens that, um, because of their religiousness, thought that sex with it, having sex with your husband to try and procreate was a bit, mm. mm -hmm. she had many, many pregnancies and many, many, must have been traumatic miscarriages and she kept going. Uh, and she had very um, late it wasn't for lack of trying. Too. Like it was, she carried to term several times and still lost the, ch the child. It wasn't just early. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Yes. <laughs> but for, for me, what I like to think of her, Catherine Wagen for me is incredibly frustrating because um, she was incredibly, I called her the obstinate, well I actually quoted someone else calling her obstinate, she was incredibly obstinate to the point where she actually made things a lot harder for herself but she's incredibly tenacious and she didn't change her mind, she never gave in, um, she was incredibly courageous uh, for standing up for herself, for staring up for her daughter Mary. And I like to think of her in that sense, uh, particularly as it, it's a more interesting way of looking at her because we'll go on to talk about Anne of Cleves, but she she did the completely different thing to what Anne of Cleves did when she was, uh, Henry wants to divorce. You know, she, Anne of Cleves essentially gave her what she wanted, what Henry wanted. He took, She took the deal. Catherine didn't. She fought him every step of the way. And what's brilliant when studying him is she beat him every single time. Every time uh, she, he sent nobles over, he just, she just wiped the floor with her. Mm. She came in and had, again, absolutely won the show. But every time she won, she lost because every time she did that, she had a little bit more of her dowry, a little bit more of privilege, a little bit more money, a little more household taken away. Um, so yeah. It's not always good to stand up to the king, right. um, but I, I prefer to think of her in that sense as someone who uh, took decisions, who did things. Mm -hmm. um, I also like to think of her as a stateswoman. Um, you know, she, I, I talk a lot about how she was a regent when Henry went off to war in France. She was in control in England, had to deal with this enormous Scottish invasion that happened in 1513. She sort of supervised the organization of the army that went off to fight James IV of Scots uh, at Flodden. Um, she was an advisor to Henry, because um, in the early part of Henry's reign, he didn't have this all-powerful chief minister figure that he then ended up having with Wolsey and with Cromwell. Um, she did all of that, but she was this experienced person. She had uh, great contacts because of her family. Um, he, she, could, uh, she could do things. Um, like I said, she she's the perfect queen. She does everything except for that all-important child. But it's, you know, it wasn't her fault. So I don't think it's particularly fair when thinking about her uh, with modern eyes to focus too much on that. Although, of course, when we look at it through the eyes of the people there, that was the most important thing. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so then a similar question for Anne. People remember her in so many different ways, call her a feminist, and she's remembered for bringing the Reformation, and then obviously her downfall. What do you think of? What do you remember her for? Anne Boleyn is, is incredibly popular. Uh, I did a, uh, a poll at the end of when I stopped covering, when well, I finished covering the Tudor Queens, I've, I've just finished it, and she won with 48% of the vote, and no one else even came close. Um, so she's very well remembered by a lot of people for a lot of reasons. Um, I don't like using modern concepts, modern ideas, um, when talking about or thinking about people from Middle Ages. It's incredibly problematic and you start thinking, you, st you leave the minds of the person at the time, you start trying to put a 20th century, 21st century person in there. So I don't like using the word feminist. Sure. But, um, she is this incredibly strong-willed woman and she wanted to try and redefine the, no the notion of what a queen was at the time. She wasn't really content with being a consort. She didn't want to be a, a ruling queen as such. She didn't have those kind of pretensions. She wasn't stupid. <laughs> but she saw herself as this equal to Henry, maybe not in terms of power and um, prestige, you know, she didn't, you know, she did, like I said, she didn't want to rule, but she thought that her voice should matter as much as anyone else's at court, more so than any of his advisors, and that she sort of, to use a modern phrase, you know, thought she should tell the truth to power and, and call Henry out, and, and, you know, she found out to her cost that you can't do that. Uh, it's very different when you're when you're the mistress and you're chasing something that you don't have, it's very different when, when you have that. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to think of her also as she was quite a low born woman. Um, you know, she wasn't from a great family. Um, her father was the ambassador fr to France, uh, mainly because uh, he got himself a very advantageous marriage uh, to a Howard, um, but sort of a self-made woman um, in the sense of, she went to the continent very young, to the courts of Margaret of Austria and then uh, in France as well. And she made connections, she impressed people. She carried herself an incredible sense of decorum. She picked things up, she was like a sponge. She picked up all these continental fashions, which you know, the continental Europe in terms of culture was always a few years, a few decades ahead of England. Uh, and so she sort of was at the apex of what uh, a modern, to the, at the time a modern woman was. And so she mobilized all of these things um, because she wasn't a particularly, from what we can understand from the time, a particularly attractive woman. Uh, most people sort of describe her as being of moderate looks, which is a, something <laughs> you wouldn't say nowadays, but it's what they said at the time. But she had an incredible charm, vivacity, forcefulness, intelligence. And you know, that's, that's what, I'm not surprised why people love her now because that's the uh, sort of the modern feminist ideal. Um, someone who didn't get there because of, you know, wealth or power or who her father was, or even, you know, just because of her looks, but because of her intelligence, her, the way that she carried herself. Um, I also like to think of her in terms, again, like Catherine of Aragon, in terms of her bravery and courage. I don't want to, you know, 
demean her by saying, oh, she wasn't she brave, but she was incredibly courageous in how she dealt with her fall. Mm. You know, like Catherine of Aragon, she was incredibly good at her trial. Um, it, she, again, apparently wiped the floor. Even Yussi Chapuis, who looked, said that uh, she was brilliant in that court and everyone felt rather uncomfortable because, of course, it, was, it wasn't a fair trial. She was going to be found guilty. Mm-hmm. But in, in, if there was any fairness at all in, in the proceedings, she would have been acquitted because the evidence against her was completely laughable. Um, she was interested in religious reform, in music and learning. She has this incredibly wide range of interests. But I think for me, what I, I find most fascinating about her is the way she managed to manipulate Henry. Um, how she managed, you know, not just when she was on the chase, uh, but when she was queen. Like I said, she fell. Lots of people sort of think that as soon as she gave birth to Elizabeth, that was it. You know, as soon as it became clear she wasn't going to give a son, she was done. Her fall was incredibly quick. She went from pretty decent position to dead in no time at all. It's because she managed to, even though she couldn't give him the son as quickly as everyone wanted, she managed to make herself very useful uh, in um, stable around her. Lots of powerful people. There was a big Berlin party. And she used get things done to move things along the way she wanted to get the people appointed she wanted to. Mm. She was incredibly gifted as a politician. So how do you think that Jane Seymour would have ruled if she had lived? What kind of differences do you think we would have seen with her? What kind of queen would she have been? It's very difficult because we know little about her. It was really difficult doing the research on her because she emerged from a, a like Anne Boleyn. In some ways they're quite similar, in some ways they're feeling. But they both came from similarly quite provincial families, not not great family. You now we think of the Seymour's as being powerful, but that only happened because of Jane and um, becoming the queen and then raising the rest of her family. Um, so, but we don't really have a good idea of what Jane's personality was because we don't see much of it. Um, with that said, we can see through uh, lots of other queen gives birth to a son. Uh, everything, they're, they're position, their prestige always increases because of queenship at the time is to bring, bring on the next generation uh, and particularly with Henry, particularly with the precarious nature of Tudor of the Tudor family, that it wasn't clear who would take over if Henry didn't uh, provide a stable heir so we can, I think we can make an educated guess that Jane would have become a more powerful figure. Um, She wasn't crowned. She was uh, the first of Henry's wives not to receive a coronation. None of the rest of them did. Um, She might well have gotten a coronation. Who knows? There you can see there's a lot of Seymours congregating around her. We have her two brothers, Edward and Thomas, uh, and there are other Seymours as well. You could have been raised, so you could have seen a faction developing like you got with the Boleyn faction, like you got with the Woodvilles, mm-hmm. um, with Edward IV. So she could have 
had that surrounding her. Um, and then that's, she could have used that to her advantage. She could have become a powerful queen. Maybe she wouldn't have. Maybe she would have been the kind of woman who would have contented herself with raising Edward, uh, with supervising his um, more children. I'm somewhat doubtful of that, given Henry's um, suppose uh, sexual giving birth, uh, or um, not giving birth, um, <laughs> impregnating people for want of a better word. Um, and it seemed to get worse as he got, you know, who knows, she, you know, they might have had more children. Uh, that would have only increased her position, increased her position as a regent. What if she had survived Henry? She was quite a bit younger than him. Um, I don't think there's, I, I think it's very unlikely that Jane would have fallen because, you know, she'd provided the air. I think it was almost untouchable. Mm. And so it's very possible that she would have, he would have, um, Yes, she would have survived Henry. So it's interesting to think, you know, what would her position have been in the regency of her son, Edward? Um, she would have been right at the centre. Let's, you know, her brother, Edward Seymour, ended up being the Lord Protector. She would have been right up there because um, people like to keep these things in the family. Sure. The difficulty is, is in, with thinking about which would be powerful. Thomas Cromwell's still there. And Thomas Cromwell's not a man who shares power. Uh, it's fall. And of course, he fell because of the marriage to Anne of Cleves. Um, maybe he would have fallen even without that. Um, well, if, because obviously, if Jane Seymour was the Queen Anne of Cleves wouldn't have turned up, maybe Cromwell would have fallen for some other reason. You know, you, you can only rise so high and stay there for so long. Um, but if Cromwell stayed around, it was, you could possibly say that Jane wouldn't have had much power because it's quite difficult for a woman to gain power, and particularly if you have this all-powerful chief minister figure. Uh, it may have been that um, that she wouldn't have had it, but it's it's possible. But like I said, with the little that we know about Jane, um, and certainly about her personality, there's, so, there's only snippets, and so it's really difficult to get an idea of the kind of woman she was. So you talked about Catherine Varagon and then the difference with how Anne of Cleves accepted kind of her lot. And it would have been really frightening for her, I would think, and also not knowing the language. Um, how do you think she was able to, to negotiate this deal for herself? Um, how was she able to be successful with that? Tell me a little bit about just how she went through the, kind of how she went through the motions of, of having that happen. She was. Um, I think it's also fair to say, though, that um, a lot of these things happened to her. Uh, she didn't have much of a say in what went on. Um, she was sent away um, from court uh, so that this coup against her could take place, so that she could, the divorce could happen. Um, she didn't really understand the culture. She didn't really know anyone. Her English was iffy. Um, and so she didn't have a choice in how the divorce proceedings went down. She didn't have a powerful... Uh, a powerful figure, she like Catherine of Aragon did. Um, so, if you're being uncharitable, you could say, "Well, she didn't really have any choice in how she handled it; it just happened." Sure. But she did play her hand well, and she played it well all the way through. Yes, it was the sense she did the sensible thing. Possibly, one could argue the obvious thing. Mm -hmm. Catherine did the obvious thing, though, and look what happened. She 
recognized the situation and she, like I said, she took the deal when the gun was good. Um, she could have fought it. She could have said, no, I'm, a, I'm from a <clears throat> good family. I don't deserve to be treated this way. Um, she could have easily done that and tried to sort of win Henry back in that sense. Uh, and that wouldn't have gone well. And we sort of saw with Catherine of Aragon, the deals that she was being offered got steadily worse over time as Henry got more and more angry, more and more frustrated. And that likely would have happened with Anne of Cleves as well. She, wouldn't, she wasn't gonna win this. There's no situation in which Anne of Cleves and Henry suddenly made up and they lived happily ever after. You know, she was gonna be ditched. Um, and so she um, recognized that situation. Um, but I think the way that she really did well in the later periods. Um, she didn't force herself on the court. She didn't try and throw her weight around. She clearly thought of be the rightful queen um, throughout the rest of her life, or at least certainly the rest of Henry's life. Um, she didn't think that what happened was right, but she also knew that she wasn't gonna get there by being an obstinate woman like Catherine did. Um, she never gave up on trying to become queen again. Um, when Anne, uh, Catherine Howard fell, uh, she put up a big fight to try and become queen again. And by all accounts, she was absent. Catherine Parr became queen. Uh, when Catherine Parr uh, was in a bit of trouble, uh, towards the end of her time as queen, when it looked like she fall, might well even be executed, um, there were sort of rumors flying around that maybe Anne of Cleves could take over again. So even you know, with the other two wives, there was a sort of spectre of Anne of Cleves as this you know, powerful, uh, sort of wealthy dowager, um, the king's sister, all being there. And she was a figure in the kingdom um, right the way through. Um, so yeah, she the way she negotiated it is by having the awareness of knowing what her position was, the weakness of her position, but also that there was a, that Ali still a significant figure, still maintain her dignity, and he played her cards right. And then thinking about stereotypes, Catherine Howard has so many stereotypes with her. Um, there's like the abused girl, there's the party girl, kind of what, what do you think is the truth behind that? And tell us who the real woman was behind all of those stereotypes. There's another thing I found out when studying Catherine Howard. There is a real huge problem when you're trying to study her, and that's that we don't know when she was born. Now that's not enormously unusual um, for women um, in the Middle Ages and in the early modern period, particularly ones that she came from a powerful family, but she came from kind of the unfashionable end. So, but what's unusual about Catherine is there's such a wide variance in when she was born and given so much of what happened to her happened when she was very young. And obviously it's very difficult to know this. Like I said, I'm not sure I mentioned, there's a seven year variance and so when you study her, it's difficult to know when you talk about these men coming into her dormitory, you know, like I was talking about in this weird boarding school thing. It's all rather fun and exciting and interesting to think about if it's happening to a um, 
a, a, a woman or girl between about the age of 13, 14, 15, 16, because at that time that was considered of age that you know you can get married then, children then. So that is another end of the spectrum. This is happening to someone who's 10, 11 years old. Mm. And so it's quite fashionable amongst a lot to play the abuse narrative with Catherine Howard. Um, she's in the narrative now, she's no longer the party girl. She's this abused woman, or girl even, um, who right from the beginning was uh, taken advantage of by did not have her best interests at heart and taught her all the wrong lessons. I'm, the way, I, I, I annoyingly, I don't have the book anymore, which sort of persuaded me vaguely of how old she was. Um, the date that I found most plausible of her birth was about 1522, 1523. This means that when she met the man, man number one, a man, uh, man called Henry Mannix, who was a music teacher, she was about 13, 14, and he was about 19. So I don't, I think the abuse narrative isn't quite right. Particularly, as I say, I don't like denying people their agency. And from everything that we can tell with Catherine, she uh, was in control of these relationships. All these men seem utterly, all the men in her life seem utterly besotted by her. She seems this incredibly vivacious, lively girl and, and woman. Mm. Um, so I don't, I don't play into the abuse narrative. The party girl narrative I do buy into a little bit, um, but I think that's really the fault of her upbringing. She was incredibly let down by every single person in her life who was supposed, who had some sort of position of authority over, who had some sort of parental idea. Her father was, like I said, an absolute waste of space. He was terrible. Uh, he was, he kept getting decent marriages and spending all the money. He was a gambler. He was always in debt. Uh, he basically abandoned the family um, to try to get jobs on the continent to try and earn some money. So she, so Catherine was put in this finishing school, boarding school, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. uh, and her, I think it was her grandmother, Agnes Howard, who was in charge. And she was, her job was to, mold these these girls these young women into courtly and stately and dignified and morally upright women um we see this with a lot of the other queens the, you seem to have this sort of this figure in her life usually it's a mother or maybe some other guardian who imbues them with the sense of how to carry yourself how you acted in, in, when you were a grown-up, when you were at court. Catherine Howard learned none of these lessons. Um, the supervision was incredibly lax, if anything. Catherine, Agnes Howard was told many, many times about what was going on. Uh, it was happening under her nose, everyone knew. And yet she made only cursory attempts to try and do anything about it. Um, when Catherine Howard finally left there, having had already had Sex for the first time, we're not married, very bad idea in the Middle Ages. And she'd had these flings. She'd learned all the wrong lessons about how you could act and because she'd never been taught anything different. Then she was sort of thrown into court 
attempting, basically, a lot of people seem to be throwing her at Henry to try and grow the position of the Howard clan at court. None of them did any due diligence. Um, you would have thought that if you're trying to raise your position at court, you would perhaps ask a few questions about how, you know, how things have been going at home. Anyone could have told her that she was completely ill-suited to be a queen, but they just saw dollar signs, they saw money and influence they could have if they could get this Howard to marry Henry. And again, they got, she was completely let down by them as well. Um, and her fall was entirely of her, is entirely of her own doing, at least superficially, um, because she made to um, have uh, to carry on these affairs. She brought into her household lots of women who were around her when she was growing up uh, at Chesham Hall and at Lambeth Palace, and she surrounded by them. There's a suggestion that maybe that maybe in a bit of blackmail, but she certainly didn't help us by keeping the ghosts in her past, the skeletons in her closet, right there for anyone to see. Mm. And in the Tudor court, really backbiting place, people were going to find out. Uh, uh, this was not going to be a secret that was going to be held. Um, and she was still flirting around with people. So <laughs> I love her because she is just completely different to everyone else. She's this breath of fresh air but she was a breath of fresh air in the worst possible way. <laughs> and so then such a switch to Catherine Parr, who was a writer, a published writer, who was a reformer. Can you, I'd love to know more about her as a woman and particularly her writing. And then also a little bit about kind of the threats that she fell under as a reformer and how she was able to navigate through that successfully. Queen of England um, to publish under her own name. Um, she published at least three books. The first one was a translation. It wasn't actually published under her name. Uh, the first one that she did publish under her own name is a book called Prayers and Meditations. Uh, and this was a collection of translated texts. It's about 65 pages long and it's meant for private devotion. Uh, and this is very much part of her own brand of Protestantism. She was, um, it was in English, so this is very important in that sense. But the most famous one, the most important thing that she published, Lamentations of the Sinner, it was written about 15, was finished writing in about 1546. So she'd been, she'd been queen for um, after Henry's death because it was, very controversial. It's it's quite radical. Um, it's possibly the most radical text ever written by an English woman up to that point. One of the most radical things ever written by any woman in, um, up to that point in sort of medieval early Europe. Um, Lamentations, are unlike the other two things, which are translations, is uh, a sort of a conversion narrative. Um, she talks about um, what the the problems in the Catholic Church? She's very, very rude about the establishment of the church. She calls them foul gluttons, uh, adulterers, fornicators. You know the language, the really, it's a really extreme anti-Catholic language. There, um, she espouses. And I already said I don't like the word feminism, but I guess a kind of form of proto-feminism in the sense that uh, using the Bible 
and the example of Jesus Christ is an example. She identifies the virtues that the Christ child is seen as having of being humble, meek, and innocent. Um, and she says, well, these are the same virtues that an obedient Christian wife is supposed to have. So she is not making men and women the same, but she is raising them onto the same plane at least. Um, and she thinks they should be viewed with a, a degree of equality. They didn't, shouldn't have the same powers. She wasn't saying that men and women should be in the sense of what they did, but they should be morally at least equal and should be listened to equally. Um, possibly the reason why she didn't publish it under until Henry died is she actually attacks she attacks uh, kings in general, um, but it's a it, the attacks she makes could e very easily um, be uh, made against Henry. Mm. She criticizes uh, princes as um, being warriors who didn't fight for the right reasons. They fought for selfish reasons, for their own reasons. Uh, they fought power, whereas Jesus Christ fought for the meek, fought for the humble, fought for the glory of God. Um, she uh, sort of compares uh, that to the example, the biblical example of David. And so what she's essentially thinking, I think, is that the wars, the men, the powerful men, the fighting are these sort of insignificant, like children playing, other than when compared to the real fights that were happening and that needed to be fought and that should be. Um, and she doesn't mention Henry by name. She doesn't make any particular over allusion to Henry, but Henry was very, very fond of war. He was very, very fond of trying to restore England and uh, to its position of being a dominant power in Europe, Henry V. And Catherine, essentially in this, is saying, you are a child, stop being so selfish. Mm. Um, mm. To then move on a bit to uh, the plot against her. Uh, as I said, Catherine is the first queen. The, the religious situation in England in, in the late 15, mid 1540s is this very weird sort of stalemate when you have these conservative forces like the Duke of Norfolk, like Stephen Gardner. You have these quite extreme Protestant figures like Catherine Parr and Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And then you have Henry in the middle, who is this person who sees the only person who seems quite content and happy with how things are. Mm. He was only ever really interested in religious reform so as far as it improved his own, a true believer. Uh, he certainly wasn't a Protestant. Um, and so this plot uh, was a plot made, uh, organized, he got to Tom Cramner and not that hadn't worked out and so Catherine was like the second in the rung just how powerful Catherine was you know she was seen as the second most important um, religious reformist figure in the kingdom after the Archbishop of Canterbury wow. what's interesting about this plot though and it's this happened the same with Thomas Cramner is that Henry was very very fond of playing people off against each other uh, to try and maintain the the middle. Um, and so he, uh, with Catherine, uh, 
Catherine liked to go in, it was ill at the time, and Catherine liked to go into his bedchamber and nag him about, um, about you know, how he wasn't being reformist enough, trying to persuade him to be more Protestant, uh, using, uh, from what we can tell, quite uh, aggressive, not to say aggressive, very assertive, I would say, um, language and uh, argument. Uh, she wasn't being meek here, she was being very assertive. Uh, and uh, Stephen Gardner, the Bishop of Winchester, very conservative figure, comes along and essentially tells Henry, you know, are you going to stand for that? Mm. And Henry sort of chews her out over it and um, basically tells the conservative forces, she's gone, I'm going to get rid of her. Uh, but then Henry he guarantees that Catherine advances of this, uh, Com for complicated reasons. Uh, and so Catherine has the opportunity to um, save herself if she wanted to, or if she um, was willing to roll, um, be a bit more of the meek, humble woman that she seems to talk about a lot in Lamentations of a Sinner. And she does do that. As soon as she felt that Henry is meaning to have her arrested, uh, after a, what we can tell from the source, a panic attack, she uh, makes sure she hides all of the kind of Protestant books she has, all the ones that could be considered problematic. She sort of throws herself at her husband's feet and tells terms as how much of a submissive wife she wants to be. She gives excuses as to her behaviour. She talks about how she only wants to learn from the great Henry VIII about what a true <laughs> <laughs> uh, Christian should be in this time. Um, yeah, she didn't believe in any of this, she didn't have any choice, uh, but she she did what had to be done. Um, she was kind of set up for this by Henry. Um, Thomas Cramlett, same thing happened to Thomas Cramlett a little bit before, uh, and so again, the way for her was set out for her, but she played her cards right, she played the position, she had the awareness to make sure that she did everything right. Um, and there's a very amusing story of Henry and Catherine walking through a garden and the conservatives turning up to arrest that, you know, Henry had given her that position, uh, that um, permission and that order. And he absolutely yells them, tells them to go home. Mm. Um, and then Catherine's just sort of pretty and very smug. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I think, yeah, I mean, again, she's a bit like Anne of Cleves in the sense that, um, the way was made for her, she was, the way to salvation wasn't uh, a particularly um, circuitous one, it was uh, one that was, there was a thing she had to do, she had to give in, she had to be submissive. Catherine Parr was not a submissive woman by trait. Uh, this wouldn't, it wasn't a very easy thing for her. The things that she said to Henry to save her own life were things that she did not believe in. But again, she knew what to do, she did it. And then my kind of final question is about their relationships with Mary, um, particularly because she would have been an adult for most of these, for most of these queens. Um, so maybe just a little bit on the, on the children, but particularly kind of what their relationships would have been like with Henry's adult daughter with Mary. Mary, a lot of the wives seem to have quite a uh, positive view of Mary. Uh, she, they seem to have found her a very impressive person, um, but he was. 
start off with, with Jane Seymour. Um, we know that the two were friendly, uh, they got on. What well, we can, I think, that these were two people who had a lot of pressures coming in. The, 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 the Tudor courts is an incredibly fresh, stabby, you know, backstabby sort of place. Uh, and I think they got on essentially because they didn't have real interest between them in whether they got on or whether they were enemies. Um, and so they kind of just got on because they could be themselves around. And wasn't using Mary and Mary wasn't using Jane. And we know that they got on quite well because Yusuf Shapui, the imperial ambassador, who was um, Charles V, the, uh, the emperor was Mary's cousin. Um, so always very keen to tell Charles who is on their side and who is against, who's against them. And uh, he has nice th some very nice things to say about Jane once she becomes queen. Um, with Anne of Cleves, um, religion, I don't think, was a hugely important thing here. Um, they seem to have treated each other with respect. Um, they were both kind of... They've gone through a very similar thing with... Um, when it came to, the, to her, um, Mary was... Uh, much, you know, she was the symbol of the failed marriage. Uh, she was an obstinate, stubborn woman. Uh, and, you know, she made no bounds about her disapproval of everything that was going on. And, of course, had been sort of unceremoniously chucked away uh, from the throne and managed to sort of maintain the position. But she was still, it was still a very humiliating thing that happened to her, uh, being married and then dumped and the language used uh she was you know talking about how you know ugly she was henry questioned her virginity right he you know some really nasty things and mary at that time was also forced to sign a settlement that uh, acknowledged her ambassador that acknowledged that her mother's marriage wasn't legal um you know the very things that catherine and mary was forced to um, to deny it, to sign their way, to, to save her own skin. And so I think the two found themselves sort of a spirit. Um, neither of them were a whole lot. Um, so I think you can't sort of see them as sort of always, you know, hanging about in the corner gossiping or whatever. Um, you know, they wouldn't have seen each other all that often, but they seemed to get on and uh, enjoy each other's past company. Um, and please was present um, when Mary came to the throne, um, things got a little bit difficult between them towards the end, but they seemed close, or at least friends, I mean, right through past Henry's death, through through Edward's reign, and then it's the beginning of Mary's. Um, with Catherine Howard, <laughs> it's always a problem when your father marries someone who's younger than, who's younger than you. Um, not that I have any uh, experience of this, mm -hmm. but I can only imagine it's a really weird thing to happen. Um, so she certainly couldn't be a mother figure to Mary. Um, Mary seems to have held um, Catherine in a great degree of contempt. She, you know, Mary was a very dignified woman. Um, she was the she, you know, she was the daughter of um, of Catherine of Aragon. This incredibly. Uh, 
important woman uh, and you know incredibly stately woman. She was the granddaughter of Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon, you know, powerful, powerful people. And of course she was the king's daughter. Who was this Catherine Howard? You know, who, who the hell is she and who the hell, what the hell does she have to say that's, uh, to say that's important? Um, Catherine Howard actually seems to have taken a bit more of an interest in Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth start, you know, starts getting a bit older. Um, and I think you can see that in the sense of, you know, Elizabeth uh, was a Howard in the sense that um, she was uh, Anne Boleyn's daughter and Boleyn was the daughter of a, of a Howard and sort of part of that clan in Stonewall. Or at least people around thought that you could create, you know, this Howard center of gravity with Elizabeth in it as well. Um, mm. Catherine Parr is the was an incredibly good stepmother. Uh, she seems to have really thrived in this role. It began with her second marriage. Um, she inherited from her second husband, who was a who was a widower as well, two children. She took a particular interest daughter, uh, whose name escapes me. I, I want to say she was called Margaret, but uh, I might be wrong on that. Don't quote me on that. Um, she uh, was very interested in her spiritual education and she turned her into this uh, reformist figure because her second husband was not, was not in any way interested in form. Um, Catherine was, and she essentially turned his daughter into a Protestant. Um, so she had that experience when she married Henry. She was about the same age as Mary, um, but she was, so she wasn't really a mother figure to Mary, but she was a staunch ally of Mary and a promoter of her interests. Mm. And she sort of took advantage of the situation that occurred. Um, Henry knew that his reign was coming to an end. She was, he wasn't going to have any more children. So I think he was perhaps more inclined to restore Mary and Elizabeth's succession just to secure it but it may not have happened without Catherine Parr being an advocate for them, uh, sort of cajoling and promoting them, mm -hmm. involving them in, in courtly activities. Um, it's arguable, but possible to say that you don't get Mary Tudor and Elizabeth without Catherine Parr. Um, I wouldn't stake my house on it, uh, but I, I think it's quite possible that you miss all of it out, that uh, they just get ignored, uh, and we have a very fractious succession when, when even more fractious succession when Edward died. Um, Catherine um, was a big, very involved with Edward. Uh, I know your question was about Mary, but I'd like to expand a little bit to talk about Edward. Um, she wrote a lot to Edward um, and to Elizabeth as well and to Mary, but Edward, there's an awful lot of correspondence and he asks her for advice. Um, he's, he, other figure. Obviously he never knew his mother, she died when he was only a few days old and none of the other queens had really shown much of an interest in him. Um, she took an interest in his education. Uh, there's a story of when a French ambassador comes to court uh, and Edward is supposed to um, be uh, to, to go with him from where he lands to the palace and this is an adorable letter where Edward is essentially asking him, you know, what do I do? How do I, how do I do this? Um, she talks about, uh, you know, what language do I speak to him? You know, I need to brush up on my Latin to talk Latin to him. Oh. Um, it's really, it's really cute. Um, with the, the, the fly in the ointment with 
um, with as far as Henry's children is concerned, is Elizabeth. Um, she showed definitely, uh, she did all those things I've been talking about when Henry was alive. She took an interest in the education. She uh, tried her best to make sure that she was brought up in what she thought was the best way, i.e. the Protestant way. Um, but when Henry died, um, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth was essentially placed into uh, Catherine's care, um, her and her new husband, Thomas Seymour, and uh, along with uh, Jane Grey. And there are some quite famous and quite disturbing stories of what happened when Elizabeth was in Catherine's care because her husband, Thomas, engaged in some incredibly inappropriate activity um, yeah. in terms of essentially grooming Elizabeth. Um, maybe not as a, as a future wife, but certainly as is someone who is dependent on him. Um, this, you know, he, he used to sort of touch her in inappropriate places. He would sort of get into bed with her all sorts of horrible stuff. And Catherine knew about this and she even participated in, in some of it. Um, now, it, you know, it's a different time. We don't, some of the evidence we have is a little bit old, so it's difficult to know exactly what was going on. Um, but I think it's difficult to give Catherine Parr the, uh, the complete motherly tick um, because she, she does have this, this problem at the end because it, I think it, she was blinded by her love for her husband and uh, he wasn't a very appropriate person, a very nice person. Um, but she certainly, Catherine Parr had more importance in the bringing up of Henry's children than anyone else. Um, certainly more than their respective parents did. Um, sorry, so certainly once their, their respective parents had taken out the equation, because obviously with Mary Tudor, her mother was the most important figure, but you know, she lived with her mother alive for a very long time. And then finally, before we let you go, how can people find out more about you? How can they support you? Um, do you have any plugs for anything? Tell us more about where we can find out more about you and about the show and about how we can support you. One of the Queens of England podcast, um, oof, just over just over two years ago now, uh, started with uh, Matilda of Flanders, the um, wife of William the Conqueror, and I've been taking each one in turn all the way through. Last week, um, I wrapped the last of Henry's wives. Um, the last episode on that uh, does an awful lot with the stuff I was just talking about with Catherine Parr. Um, today, uh, I'm first in a sort of series of supplementals because I'm not going to be covering, even though it's called the Queens of England, I'm not going to be covering Mary and Elizabeth because they ruled and I'm more interested in the sorts. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm going to be talking about Philip of Spain, Mary Tudor's husband. Um, so that's probably the next episode that'll pop up in your feeds if you did want to subscribe. Um, I'm going to be going right through to the end of the Stuarts. Um, so there's lots, there's lots still to come. Uh, you can find the podcast anywhere you normally find the podcast. I hope it's everywhere at least. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, anything. Uh, just type in Queen's England Podcast and you'll find it. Um, I got a, I'm on all the usual social medias as well. Just type those in. Uh, the web is queensofenglandpodcast.com uh -huh. where you can find all the episodes and uh, various other things as well. 
Um, if you did want to support me, uh, if I have any of my listeners out there uh, who aren't supporting me at the moment, uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast. Um, I have, I'm very lucky to get a, have a small number of, well, not even a small number anymore, a, a quite a large number of very generous benefactors. And it's really, really useful uh, in getting all the best equipment, in getting lots of all the right books and just being able to continue this project and devote as much time as I can.